Welcome to Women in the Arena podcast, the podcast celebrating women doing extraordinary things in plain sight. I'm your host, Audra Egan, and our mission is to elevate the value, strength, and resilience each woman brings to the world. Without further delay, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome to Season 5 of Women in the Arena podcast, where our community is the best, period. If you are new to our community, first of all, welcome, and let me introduce myself. I'm Audra, your host, and I want to change the world. And I want to change the world one woman at a time. And I'm going to do that by celebrating them doing extraordinary things in plain sight. And I have just gotten started. I am of no shortage of interviewing amazing, fabulous women all over the world. So I've got lots of work to do. So I better go ahead and start the show. Free is a bird in the sky, that is what you are. And thank you so much for joining me again this week. You all are in for an amazing treat. I am joined by an amazing lady. I'm joined by Suha Zell, and she has a remarkable history. First of all, she has 35 years of experience in in various industry, most of which is in financial services, which is an accomplishment. She's currently the chief innovation officer at Blackfin Group, where she is leading her clients to making really tough decisions. She's also on the board of governors for the National Association of Minority Mortgage Bankers of America, and she's on the board of directors for Women with Vision. She's also one of the founding members of Chief which is amazing. And she has such a story to share with you. It is my pleasure and my honor to introduce to you Suha Zell. Suha, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the show. Hi, Audra. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am I am really thrilled and excited and, and humbled to be on your podcast. I've listened to all the other women and I'm like, why does she want to have me? Because you're amazing. You're absolutely incredible and you have incredible stories and you're so down to earth and grounded about it. And you would never know that you've had such the life that you have had. And, you know, and you're one of those women that as soon as you meet you, you feel like you've known you forever. At least that's been my experience that we just instantly clicked and I felt like I've known you my entire life, and it's that comfortable, but you have a remarkable, remarkable story to tell. Thank you. I, I'm happy to, like I said, to be here and to share some of my story because it's not typical, I don't no. think, but there's also some aspects of it that are very, very typical. You know, as women, we we make decisions sometimes on the fly. Sometimes we don't realize the pivotal moments that we, you know, when we're making those decisions and the trajectory that they're going to have on our lives. And, you know, and that's why I think it's a common theme with a lot of women, um, especially these days. Yes. And and that's the topic we're going to talk about today is pivotal moments. And you're absolutely correct. The common thread amongst all of us is pivotal moments in our lives. Although we may not recognize it at the time. Sometimes it's clearly obvious that it's a it's definitely a life-changing decision, but not always. 
it's not always clear that we're making a decision that's going to change the trajectory of our lives until we look back at it and went, oh, wow, well, that's what that happened. And your life has been full of them and they've been remarkable. And like you say, some of them are unlike anybody has experienced. So why don't you start with telling us a little bit about your life and your pivotal moments? I'm happy to. So um, as many or maybe not that many know, I'm originally Lebanese. I actually was born and, and I grew up the first 14, 15 years of my life in Lebanon. We are very fortunate that we are dual citizens. So I always traveled back and forth between Lebanon and the U.S., um, unfortunately, when I was growing up, I grew up during the Civil War, um, which started in 1975. So I'm aging myself right now. And so that, you know, what I see these days on TV, you know, with what's happening in Ukraine, I, it like it, my heart aches for the children and for the families because we lived through that. We lived through that same situation, being in bomb shelters, not knowing what's going to happen, you know, standing in lines to get, you know, food, no water, no electricity. All of what we see today, we lived through that. And the situation got really bad um, in the early 80s. And um, my parents made the decision, I was um, 15, 16 at the time, that it was time for me to, to leave. They were staying behind, but they actually decided that it was time for me to, to leave Lebanon so that I could pursue, um, you know, my education, basically. And so um, they packed me up. That was my first pivotal moment. Well, not really my first, but one of the first pivotal moments of my life. And it wasn't a decision that I made. It was a decision that my parents made because they wanted to make sure that I was able to, to have the life that they saw for me that they wanted me to have, if you will. So hold on. <laughs> Let me make sure that I'm hearing you right. So you grew up in Lebanon in the middle of a civil war. When you were a teenager, a young teenager, 15, 16, your parents decided that in order for you to have a better life, you needed to leave the only country that you knew and be sent somewhere else without them. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I understand we have family in the U.S. So, yes, I was being sent by my own, but I wasn't totally, you know, like Suha dropped in, you know, a city or a town somewhere in the U.S. completely on her own. I had aunts, I had uncles, I had cousins. I wasn't going to be living with them, but I did have family here. But it was still a, you know, a, a very challenging time, I would say. Uh, I mean, and it all started with just leaving Beirut because the airport was closed. It had been bombed. So there were no flights coming in and out. We actually had to travel to the north of Lebanon first, which typically, if, you, if you're familiar with where Lebanon is, we're uh, on the Mediterranean. Um, from Beirut, you can travel north to Tripoli, Lebanon, not Tripoli, Libya. <laughs> Because a lot of people trip on that. Mm -hmm. And that's about an hour away on a normal day. But because of the Civil War, we couldn't really travel along the coast. So we actually had to go through the mountains. And that was, it probably took us about 18 hours to travel from Beirut to Tripoli. A 18 hours? 18 hours in a cab. It was my cousin, who is about six years older than me and myself, um, with three other people in the cab. Um you know, going through checkpoints. Again, you really don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so you're trying to be brave and you're trying, and, you know, you've said goodbye to your parents. You've said goodbye to, you know, to, to people that you know, and now you're traveling north. We stayed in Tripoli for a couple of days uh, while we made arrangements because the only place we could fly out from was either Cyprus or Damascus. And um, I had an aunt in Damascus, so we were going to travel from Tripoli to Damascus so that we could leave through the through the airport in Syria. Uh, that was another trip, another 12 hours to go from Tripoli to, to, to Damascus. And then we finally got out probably a couple of days after arriving in Damascus and flew um, to the U.S. And wow. arriving here, I still remember it was right Right before July 4th, 
We got here on July 3rd um, to Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where um, I have a lot of family. And my life changed from that point on. Universities here start in August. So I wasn't really sure if I was going to be returning to Lebanon or not. And so I basically applied to North Carolina State University and started my college career. Wait, hold on. I know. I'm sorry. I keep stopping you because it's a, this is a mind blowing story because you, you leave your your country of origin. And granted, I realize that you weren't by yourself, but you didn't have your parents with you. You're a teenager, 15, 16 years old, arrive in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is very different than Beirut. Oh, yeah. Uh, it is definitely not Mediterranean. And then you attend college at 16. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Are you for real? Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine college at 16. I mean, high school was difficult at 16, but college in a new country? It was very it was very interesting because I didn't drive. So I was actually in high school to take driver's ed while I'm attending college. And um, I actually chose computer science. Don't ask me why. I knew nothing about computers. I was really good at math and statistics in high school. And our educational system in Lebanon is very different from the U.S. We actually do 13 grades, not 12. So our, our freshman year is usually done in high school, and then you start college as a sophomore. So when I left Lebanon, I was actually um, finishing 12th grade. So when I arrived in the U.S., I entered as a freshman. But because I had a high school equivalency from an American institution in Lebanon, because I went to the American high school there, they accepted me, but I was accepted as a special student. So I couldn't enroll in more than two classes. I was admitted to the math department, not the computer science department, although that's what I wanted to, to study. And I chose computer science because I was fascinated by it. It just blew my mind that you could work on computers and, you know, program and, and do all of that. I knew nothing about it. But um, so for the first year, I was a special student. So I took four classes. But because our educational system is so strong in Lebanon, I had done all the calculus and math and physics and chemistry. I had completed all of that as part of my education. So when I came here... And taking these classes, they were really, really easy for me. Um, so it because I had already covered that material. I mean, the subject matter is not easy, but because I had already covered it, it wasn't new to me. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. And so I was able to breeze through that first year and, and got accepted. I took one computer science class because I had to prove myself to the department before they accepted me in it. And I think at the time in 1983, when I was admitted, the, there weren't that many women in the department itself. So I'm doing all of that. I'm doing driver's ed. And in high school, you know, people are mean. I'm sorry. They are. <laughs> They're not very nice at all. So I was, I was like an outsider who straddled high school and college and trying to balance between all of that, being alone without my parents. I was very fortunate because my brother was here as well, and he was a lot of support. I mean, I, I will definitely say that. He, but I was not an easy 16-year-old, you know, on her own without her parents. So you can just imagine how many gray hairs I gave him. He's three years older than me. And, and so it was, it was a very interesting, challenging, emotional, um, dramatic, all of those things at that time. I, I mean, this was during your formative years because your, your brain is still shaping and forming very much so, very actively in, in the middle of your teen years. And I mean, you went through trauma. You may not have realized it at the time because you, you were born into a civil war. And that was what you knew. So you were born into trauma. And then to save you, I don't want to use the word save you, but to give you a better life, your your parents sent you away, which also is another traumatic uh, situation. And then you get to the U.S. and it's a little bit awkward because you're only in high school to learn how to drive. 
and then you're in college. So you're, I mean, special student is is an understatement because you're you're in between two worlds. You're trying to function in between being a college student and a high school student and trying to figure out where you fit in. I mean, that's that's hard. My my heart aches for for you as a teenager because being a teenager in the US is not a piece of cake. I don't care how old you are. Yeah, high school was not easy for any of us, but under these special circumstances it must have been incredibly difficult for you at that time and it shaped you. It 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 started to mold you into the person that you are now that is full of resilience and and an inner strength. I agree that those first few years in the U.S. definitely changed me because I realized that while I have support, it really is up to me. I'm, I'm the one responsible to do or make of myself what I want to do. And so, you know, I laugh and I joke about it, but those were very, very trying times, very emotional times. But at the same time, I got to know myself during those first few years here in a way that I probably would not have been able to. And in, in all seriousness, that, those first few years truly shaped the trajectory of where my life would go. No question about it. Because I had to make decisions that a normal 16, 17-year-old would not have to. I had to figure things out that in a normal life, you would not be expected to. And again, I had wonderful support from the family that, that, I, that I had in, in North Carolina and my parents from abroad. But still, you really are making those decisions. You really are making life-changing, pivotal moment decisions that you may not recognize at the time. I find that just amazing because I think of myself as a 17, 18-year-old trying to figure out decisions and let's face it, the biggest decision I made at that age is which college to go to. I mean, and you were you were trying to to just navigate life. That's a big deal for a kid. So here you are, um, and you go through college. How old were you when you graduated? Um, I finished I before I turned twenty. You can't even. <laughs> so you're not even legal to drink. In, in the U.S. and you have your... Back then, 19-year-old was the legal drink. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay, that you're old. right. I am that old. <laughs> no, 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 no. You are that experienced. Changed. It actually did change while I was in college to 21. But when I first started, it was still 19 in North Carolina. Okay. I got it. So what was your next step, your next adventure of the pivotal moments? So the second one was um, because I left Lebanon so early and I felt like, you know, I had a really great upbringing about the culture, but I felt disjointed from it. So in um, around 1992, so this was several years after I graduated, um, I decided to move overseas because I wanted to experience what it felt like to live as an adult in the Middle East, which is my culture. And so uh, at the time, my parents were living in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. I was not, you know, emotionally or romantically involved with anybody. And, you know, I was young and free. And I was like, you know what? I've, I've been working in the U.S. for several years. Why don't I try something different? So in 1992, I actually resigned from my job. Um, I was working for a small, not small, actually, it's a very large consulting company. And I decided to move overseas. Um, and I moved to Abu Dhabi. Um, I shifted from, I stayed in technology, but I shifted from being in the consulting arena and moved into higher education. Um, I joined a relatively startup 
college system, like a community college system in the Emirates. Um, there were 11 campuses, um, 12 campuses, actually. And I started out as a programmer analyst. And I, I, you know, I was in Abu Dhabi for about 10 years. So a lot of things happened in those 10 years. But the, the two pivotal moments were moving there, making the decision to move there, and basically changing my life all over again, reinventing myself all over again. And then at the end of the 10 years, after 9-11, making the decision to return to the U.S. and come back home. And so it was, you know, I learned a lot. I love to travel. So when I was living over there, I got to see a part of the world that I had not seen before, mostly in the Far East, you know, and, and that part of the world. I was able to learn and really drink in so much about the Middle Eastern culture, which is something that I had not experienced personally as an adult. And so going there at first was very scary. Again, you're, you're uprooting yourself one more time, Suha, and you're changing your environment one more time. I'm moving into really a male-dominated environment. You know, the Middle East, especially the, you know, the, the Gulf area, um, are very, very much a male-dominated field. This was right after, um, if you remember, 1992. That was right at the start of the Gulf War. Um, sorry, I should say at the end of the Gulf War. And so they were just opening up, uh, being more acceptable, accepting of the Western culture, if you will. So there were a lot of expats there, um, you know, from the UK, from Australia, from the US. And so it was a very thriving community, very, very friendly, very open um, to, to new cultures, if you will. So I truly... I. I grew personally so much during that time, you know, being in that environment, learning about my culture, um, growing professionally at the same time, because I started out as a programmer analyst. I became a faculty member at the university. I saw a need to create, you know, an institute because data is something that I'm very, very passionate about. So I saw the need as a university to have an institutional research department. So I actually pitched that and got it approved and became their director of institutional research. So it was, you know, personally, professionally, it was very, very, it was an exponential growth time for me at that point. And then 9-11 happened. And Which that was life-changing for everyone. Everybody. Everybody. And so that pivotal moment, again, something happened that was not in my control. What was in my control was to make the decision, I need to come back home. I've been away for 10 years. It's time for me to come back home. And so it took me about a year to sort of untangle everything and decide, you know, resign, hand over the projects, you know, pack up my home again and come back. So, and I finally returned to the U.S. Uh, full-time in 2002. Wow. So you have, you have reinvented your life several times. And, and what, is, what is striking me as, as a theme is that you are, you're creating your own path be, and you are creating your own path in the in-between. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, as I explained before, is about your experience of being a, a young person in between that space in between college and high school where, you know, there's not really a whole lot of you. But then you lived your life as the in between being Middle Eastern, but not having the experience of fully experienced it as a child and then going and experiencing it as adult. But then again, in your formative years, now you're. Americanized. So now you've had the you're yet another forging your path in the in-between and creating a life that doesn't look like anybody else's. That's so I mean, I I've never thought of it that way, Audra, but you're absolutely right. It's almost like I'm I'm always in between something and another. And so having to reinvent myself in that way has actually been very, very uplifting for me because I know with the number of times that I've done this, 
that I can do it. It's, it's scary. Don't get me wrong. It's very challenging, but it's also very liberating because you can truly do whatever you want to do. And I'm very fortunate. I mean, my parents, when I was growing up, that's, that was the message I always got. Like I said, I have one brother, he's older than me. It's just the two of us. I was never told that I couldn't do something. I was never told that there were limitations on what Suha can achieve or can accomplish. And I really attribute that to my mother in particular and her sisters. My mom is one of six sisters and they were all back then highly educated. Um, they had uh, two of my aunts have PhDs. My mom has her master's. They were all in education. They all realized that women can do whatever women want to do. And so that's the message that I always received. Um, and so even though I reinvent, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I get to reinvent myself multiple times, the thread, the common thread that I've always known and accepted is that I can do anything I want to do. There's no limitations for me. Um, it's the limitations are the ones that I set for myself. Otherwise, I'm able to achieve whatever I want to achieve. And that's all, that's very liberating to know that no one is stopping you except yourself. And so when I, and that's really one of the pivotal moments is when I returned to the U.S. after being abroad, because I was hit with a wall. Um, I had never thought that I had any limitations, but coming back right after 9-11 with a name like Suha, who had been living in the Middle East in the hotbed of, you know, let's be real, what Americans think, terrorist country, um, I, you know... I just could not find a job. I was a senior leader in higher education when I moved back and I was hitting a brick wall. I couldn't get interviews. I couldn't talk to anyone. I couldn't find a job. And so I was stuck. It was the first time in my life that I was stuck. And again, it was a pivotal moment that was forced on me and I had to reinvent myself again. And that's, the, that's when I stumbled into mortgage lending, into financial services. Um, at the time I was like, okay, I, I came back in like, I think it was August or September and by like three months and I hadn't found a job. And I was like, you know what? I just need to do something. And so I actually joined a, a placement, a placement company, a temporary placement company. And they started sending me on placement jobs. And one of the first ones I landed was at a startup mortgage company who needed a data entry clerk. And I was like, you know what? It's a job, whatever. So I actually took it and that's how I stumbled into mortgage. And again, the trajectory of my life takes yet another fork, yet another shift. And here I am 20 years later, um, still in the industry and loving every minute of it. Back then, there wasn't really a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion, you know, all these wonderful terms that we talk about now. Um, I was definitely excluded back then, but the mortgage industry welcomed me with open arms. And, and I truly appreciate the opportunities that have come from that, from that one decision to say, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a placement job. It's a temporary job, but at least I'm working, I'm out of the house, I'm meeting people, I'm doing something so that I can get my, 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 my life moving again. Well, I want to make the point because there's, there's a lot of people that have maybe a perception of what that whole big, scary mortgage industry thing looks like. First of all, I, I will say that um, you don't pick the mortgage industry. The mortgage industry picks you. It. I have never heard anybody ever say, I purposely did this. Not once. Yeah. It, it's always, I was I was brought here by circumstance in some way, shape or form. So there is that. The second thing is, especially when Suha entered the industry, which was around the same time that that I did, it's a very male-dominated organization. Didn't matter which organization you were in, you were probably in the minority. And you had to be scrappy. You had to be able to find your footing because nobody was going to help you do it. 
And that was incredibly empowering. So what I want to say here is that you had been training your whole life in this reinvention mode because that's what this, for all of its faults, it also has tremendous opportunities. Absolutely. Because if you want to do something different, you can. You can reinvent yourself over and over and over again in this same industry, which is such an amazing lesson for life. And you, like I said, you had been training for it for for years since you were you were a teenager. So here you are in this industry and you just you just happen to say it's a job. I'll just go in and see what the heck happens. And you've had a remarkable career with with um your your roles and the 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 board appointmentships that you've had and the effect that you've had specifically on other women and helping them work through their pivotal moments. I've had the opportunity to watch from afar on how your influence has changed women's lives around you. And and like I said, you and I didn't get to know each other. And I guess it's only been the last six weeks. And But I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. Because I have watched how you, how you, how you work through your job to affect change in people's lives. So tell me a little bit about those pivotal moments, because those are also, even though you may not recognize it, each one of those, what you thought might be small, is life changing for somebody else. It's uh, very interesting that you bring up this point, Audra, because, again, like you mentioned, when we started in 2002, when we entered the mortgage industry, there weren't that many women in it, and there weren't any role models. There weren't any people that you could look go to with, you know, if you had an issue or a situation or you needed advice or feedback or just somebody to just talk to and, you know, a shoulder not necessarily to solve your problem, but just somebody that you can go to. We were very siloed as women because there were so few of us back then. And because there were so few of us back then, there was a lot of, I hate to use the word cattiness and bitchiness. And, you know, I'm going to make, you know, elbowing so that you have your spot. I saw that and I knew it was wrong because I, I, again, suffered from it. And I wanted to create an environment where that doesn't happen, where we actually support one another. And it really, you know, many of us just go along until we have like an aha moment. And my aha moment came when I was interviewing Marsha Davies about a year and a half ago. I was, I didn't know the impact she would have on on me um, I had been following her. I knew all about Marsha, but then I had the opportunity to interview her. And one of the things that she said really stuck with me because she asked, you know, we were talking and one of the comments actually that she made was, we rise up together. We help each other and we need to find ways to do more of that. And I remember our interview was on a Friday and that comment stuck with me all weekend long. And it just kept running, reverberating in my head. What can I do? I'm only one person, but what can I do? How can I help? And I, I got a, an idea. I was like, you know what? We on podcasts like this one, we talk to the senior leadership. We talk to exemplary women who are really phenomenal at what they do. They're great servant leaders. They are changing the path for women. They're paving that path and making a difference. But why don't we start recognizing that next generation? Bring it down a level. And so my, my brainchild was to, I called it in the spotlight with Suha. And I just started talking to young women. I started inviting young women. I started to ask the leadership to nominate women on their team who they think 
should be recognized, should be appreciated. And so that's where that brainchild for me came from. It started with that pivotal moment of talking to Marsha, trying to figure out what can I do as one person to help other women. And in that, in, in, during that time, I was very fortunate to talk to 12 amazing, I mean, truly amazing young women. We did one a month because I had a full-time job and I really couldn't do more than that because I, I mean, kudos to everybody who does podcasts. Oh my God, it, it is such a, 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 a challenging t- from a time management perspective. So I was only able to highlight 12 women at the time, but it was so fulfilling to know that one, see their, how, how their life changed because they were being appreciated, recognized and, and put, you know, in the spotlight, if you will, so that people know who they are, because there's so many unsung heroes, unsung women in our industry who are doing a phenomenal job and they're not being recognized or appreciated. And, and so that one pivotal moment created this movement. And I had so much positive response from women and men about that. And I'm trying, actually, we're sort of taking it to the next level. And we've sort of, I started this year with a new um, sort of reinventing that and creating it Future Voices. So we're starting another level of it to actually elevate and give these women a voice because they are truly the future voice of our industry, to let them know that when they're being heard, we see them and we hear them. And that transforms these women in such a way. And I know it, I know it because I didn't experience that before. And I always felt excluded, left out, siloed. And to give them an opportunity to do that is so magical to me. It's not just it's not just magical as as it's affecting you personally, as it's fulfilling because you're giving these young women a platform to have their voice heard. But for them, yes, they may have this platform where they can have their voice heard within their industry, but what it does for them and how they behave and act in their lives starts to influence the people around them outside of their jobs. And I think that is where the true magic is, is that you are giving them an opportunity to be life-changing completely, not just professionally, but how they behave in the world. That is how you change the world. You change it one person at a time, and it becomes a ripple effect because it's contagious and it's you want more of it. I, I understand the feeling of fulfillment when you realize that it's not about you. It's that about exactly it. It, it. That's exactly yeah. it. it. It's about connection and it's about making sure that the other person is made to feel important. Because, and I can only tell you from my perspective, I didn't get that in in the early years. Yeah. I didn't even get that in the middle years, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't get that. I wasn't given that. So I had to take it. Yeah. I had to make it. But I want to make sure that the women that are coming behind us don't have to take it that they already have a spot. And that's what you're doing too. You want to make sure that they have a spot because I, I want I want their lives to be more fulfilled, more rounded, feel secure. And in the in the um and in the interim, it's doing the same for me. Do you feel that as well as you are making space for these women? You're you're feeling all those same things that you're trying to create for them. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll tell you that I actually learn from them because I keep, I mean, I'm a curious person. 
And I know I am not the smartest person in the room. And these young professionals, young women are incredible in their vision, in their commitment, in what they bring to the table. And I find myself learning from them more than I thought possible. So it, to me, I'm giving them, you know, a, a spot, but I, in turn, I'm drinking from their hose and learning from them because they are so giving of their time, of their knowledge. And like I said, they know things I don't know. <laughs> and and having that, you know, bi-directional exchange has been just as fulfilling for me as I hope what I'm giving them is fulfilling to them. You know what I've noticed about the next generation of women that is up and coming in, in every aspect, both professionally and personally, is that they somehow this have a more inherent view of themselves that they just automatically understand their worth, which mm-hmm. is something you and I had to fight for. Yep. Um, but they already know. And they're demanding it. And that is what it, it inspires me. It encourages me. I am so impressed by that, that they that they already feel that and they're they are brave enough to demand it. And I, I that is the lesson that I've been learning from the next generation of young women that are growing up in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that they know how to use their voice at an early phase of their career a lot better than I did until recently. I didn't know I had a voice. I didn't know I had a voice that that can say or is worthy of listening to or has something important to share at all until recently. And I still question myself. You know, my one of my continuous, you know, pivotal moments is I always question myself. Why does anybody want to listen to me? What do I have to say? Who am I to be doing this? I mean, that I, I hate to call it the imposter syndrome because I don't feel like an imposter, but I question myself, you know, and I think I've taught, I've told you about Suella that sits on my shoulder, mm-hmm. who's always talking in my head and telling me, you know, you need to stop talking. You need to stop doing this. You, you're not good enough. You, that's a pivotal moment that runs throughout my life because that's always there. And I always have to overcome that. And to a certain extent, I, I hope from what I've seen that this next generation does not suffer from that to the extent that we did. I, I, that is my hope and my goal too, because I have that same horrible personality that is like, what do you think you're doing? Yeah. Who's going to listen to you? Who, who are you to, to speak? And I've just recently gotten to the point where I'm like, shut up, you're drunk. Go away. (laughs) I mean, it's just because I, I've had to get to that point where like you, I've, I've, I've reinvented myself many, many times. And I know I can do anything. I can do anything. But it's only been recently that I realized that the only thing that stops me is me. And that's a really heavy thing to realize. And you're like, oh, my God, I'm the only thing that's stopping me between what I want and where I am now. That's a that's a lot. That's a that's a lot. So I had to name this personality something that's other than me and just tell her to shut up because it's that it doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. Um, and I don't want anybody to have to grow up with this because it's awful. It is horrible. And I, you know, I want to I want to change that like you. I, that's something that I want to change. That's that's how you and I together can be world changers. 
that we change their lives this way. So, so in our, our last couple of moments, what is what's your next pivotal moment? Because you've always got something cooking. Uh, so what are you doing next? Can we talk about that next time? Yeah. Oh, a teaser. Oh, I like this. Yes. I will take you up on that 100%. So then I will give you the space right now to leave a last thought, a last moment to leave with the audience. Absolutely. I appreciate that. You know, we all have our ups and downs and life is going to throw so many challenges at you. Give yourself some grace Take a step back and pause when you feel you're being challenged. A deep breath does so much to calm you. Try to be positive. Try to see the positive in any situation, as dark as it may be, because that will change your mindset. I had to do that several times in my lifetime. And I expect I will have to do that more in the future. And so... It's giving ourselves grace to, to give ourselves the time to sometimes just sit with the moment, embrace it, and then move on. I will leave you with that thought. Suha, thank you for that. And I can feel the warmth and the encouragement that you you exude every day to everybody. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for sharing your time with me today and with the audience. It is invaluable to me. And I am truly honored that you said yes to be on my show. Oh, I was, I was very humbled that you invited me. Thank you so much. And I guess we have a follow-up. We have a follow-up. This will be fun. I can't wait to do this. So I want to thank all of you for being with me today and every week. And we'll see you again next time. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I appreciate you spending a little bit of your time with me. Season five is a big deal. I had no idea and no expectation that we'd ever get here. And it wasn't easy. I've said it many times. I might be the one behind the mic, but I'm not doing this by myself. I'm doing this for all of us, with all of us, so we can change the world. Who knows where we'll go next? I can't wait. This has been an adventure of a lifetime. I'll see you again next week.
That's our show. I am so grateful for each and every one of you and your unwavering support and your continued belief in this movement that has become much bigger than me, much bigger than just a podcast. It has become this forward momentum that we are all doing together. If you are ready or you know somebody that is, that is ready to tell your story and share your value with the world, please connect with me. You can reach me at audra at womeninthearena.net. I am so honored and thankful that you will share your story with me and I'll make sure that it is well taken care of. I will never stop thanking each and every one of you and I cannot wait to talk to you again next week as we share another woman's story and we celebrate her doing extraordinary things in plain sight. We'll see you next time.